Well, please keep your Bibles open in the portion of Scripture that Bruce read to us a little bit earlier, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 21 to 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, we come this morning to consider what Jesus has to say about the cause of every broken human relationship. You heard me right. Today's sermon will deal with a topic which has been part of every failed marriage, every broken friendship, every failed business partnership, every church split, every broken family. We're going to consider the topic of forgiveness this morning, or possibly more specifically, unforgiveness. But before we look at the passage that we read together, let's just paint a brief picture about what the Bible says about forgiveness and unforgiveness. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 says that it is a man's glory to pass over the transgression of another. It's a man's glory to pass over the transgression of another. In other words, the glory of being a human being made in the image of God is most clearly seen when we forgive someone who sins against us, when we pass over their transgression. Now, why is this? Well, because forgiveness is a unique characteristic of the God of the Bible. And so as the saying goes, we are most like beasts when we kill, we are most like men when we judge, but we are most like God when we forgive. The early church father, John Chrysostom, said that nothing causes us to so clearly resemble God than the forgiveness of injuries. And so it's not surprising then that the Bible's appeal to us as Christians is to forgive others as God forgives us. In Colossians 3 verse 13, we read, Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So true forgiveness at its root is a uniquely Christian thing. Because it is an attitude and an action which flows out of the forgiveness that we have received from God. And so, therefore, it most clearly reflects the glory of God and his forgiveness of us. It follows then, too, that we are most unlike God when we do not forgive and so it is no secret that the devil spends much of his time, much of his effort, and he wins many of his victories in the lives of Christians by getting us to hold grudges of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness with those that we choose not to forgive, those who have sinned against us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. And yet, sadly, however, I think many Christians are ignorant of Satan's schemes and have been seriously outwitted by him as they live openly with, with hatred and unforgiveness in their hearts towards other people. And the devil laughs as he watches those who bear the name of Christ carry on in their unforgiveness, in their unchristlikeness. 
Just one more passage by way of introduction this morning to kind of drive home just how serious this matter of unforgiveness is. Because it, it literally affects our salvation and our ongoing relationship with God if we do not obey His word on this. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus taught His disciples how to pray, He taught them to pray this in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14, for Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive your trespasses. Now, if you think that, hang on, that, that just can't possibly mean what it seems to mean, then just glance down at verse 34 and 35 of the passage that we're going to get to a little bit later, Matthew chapter 18, and we see that Jesus says exactly the same thing. Matthew eighteen thirty-four, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So some of you listening to the sermon this morning are spiritually sick and may well be in a place where God has handed you over to, to spiritual prison to be tortured. That's the literal meaning of the Greek phrase here, to be handed over to the jailer. The jailer was a torturer. And God has handed you over, as it were, to be tortured spiritually because you've ignored God's word and the clear teaching on this subject of forgiveness. And so if you've struggled with unforgiveness in the past, or perhaps you are struggling with unforgiveness right now, please don't ignore God's word on this topic any longer. And if you can say, well, I've never struggled with unforgiveness, you too must pay attention today because it may well be that a day is coming when you too will fall prey to the schemes of the devil, when you will be sinned against in a way that deeply grieves and hurts you, and you will choose not to forgive. And so we all need to be prepared for the battle and we need to be ready to obey God's call to us to forgive. So let's come to the passage of Scripture. The context to the parable is of this unforgiving servant is found in the preceding paragraph. And, and we need to read this to put it into perspective, to put us in the picture as to why Peter asked Jesus the question that he, he did in verse 21. Now, if we look back to Matthew chapter 18, verse uh, 15 onwards, it's a familiar passage relating to the whole issue of, of church discipline. How we as Christians relate to one another, deal with one another when there has been sin committed in the context of believers. Let's read from verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's your responsibility. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to that group with witnesses, well, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as Jesus spoke to his disciples about this whole matter of dealing with sin between fellow Christians, Simon Peter thinks that he's perhaps spotted an area of Jesus' teaching which needs some further clarification. Because while Jesus has made it very clear in these verses what we must do if a person has sinned against us, does not repent, Jesus does not make it clear how many times we must forgive that person if they do repent. Now, why would he be thinking like that? Well, you see, in, in Jewish tradition, they spoke about three times. If a person committed a, a sin against you, an offense against you, and they asked for your forgiveness, then you should forgive them. And you should forgive them a second time if they did the same thing, and you should forgive them a third time if they did it again. But if they did it a fourth time, well, then you did not need to forgive them. In actual fact, you could specifically withhold forgiveness from them. But Peter and the other disciples, they've been with Jesus for a while now, and, and they knew that, that Jesus was not very interested in, in Jewish traditions. And he usually tended to, to bring a whole new level of grace and, and mercy into his dealings with, with sinners than the Jewish religious, uh, leaders of the day uh, we're doing and, and so Peter comes to Jesus in verse 21, and I think he's, he's genuinely trying to err on the side of, of liberal grace when he asks Jesus the following question. Lord, I understand that, that forgiveness is a, a Christian virtue, and I know that I must forgive those who, who sin against me. But Lord, help me to get practical here. How many times must I forgive someone if they keep on sinning against me? Up to seven times? And in response to Peter's question, Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times, or as some translations, if you have the CSB, says 70 times seven. The the point Jesus is making here is not in the detail of the number, 77 or 490 times, but in the fact that our forgiveness of others is meant to be without limit, as many times as necessary. That is the clear point Jesus is making here. Our forgiveness of those who sin against us needs to be unlimited. Now, if you find that hard to stomach this morning, then you are in good company. Because Jesus knew that in our weak human sinfulness, we, we would not find it easy to swallow and accept the fact that we actually need to put in practice this teaching on forgiveness. But we must do it, as we will see later, for our very salvation depends on what we do with what Jesus teaches here on forgiveness. And so once again, we see Jesus descending to the level of our spiritual weakness, into the, the pit of unforgiveness where, where many of us have perhaps been before, and, and maybe some of you are today, and instead of just commanding us to do the right thing, commanding us to do something which, humanly speaking, seems impossible, Jesus comes down to our level to teach us what he requires of us and to show us how we are to be empowered to do what he requires. And he does this by telling us another story. 
the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so Jesus starts off by telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like. This is Jesus' way of saying to us that this story is about spiritual realities. This is not really a, a story about these characters uh, in, a, in a literal sense, but it is about the spiritual truth of the kingdom which these characters reveal to us and how we are to then live in this kingdom of God. And so we've read the parable. It's, it's easy to follow. It's easy to understand. It's well known. So let's come and try and learn or discern the spiritual lessons which Jesus is trying to teach us through this story. And so in the first place, we need to see the immensity of our debt to God in verse 23 to 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. The, the translation Bruce read said 10,000 gold bars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, remember, this is a story meant to convey spiritual truths about forgiveness. So the point Jesus is making here is that God is the king and we are his servants. And the size of the debt that we owe to God is immense. Jesus uses the monetary value here of 10,000 talents. In actual fact, the, the Greek word used here is, is the word from which we get the English word myriad, which really was the highest multiplier in the Greek number system. This was before the days of, of calculators and computers. And, and so really, today it would be equivalent to our gazillion. The servant owed the king a gazillion rand. Jesus was deliberately using the, the biggest number he could find to explain the extent of our debt as sinners before a holy and righteous king and judge. To make the point very clear that just as this man could never ever hope of paying back the king's money, so too we as sinners have a debt which is so great that we have no hope of ever, not even if we lived a thousand lifetimes, ever being able to pay back to God what we owe Him because of our sin. Now let me try and just illustrate this. Let's take, for example, a super saint. And let's just assume that, that this person, this super saint, only sins three times a day in thought or word or deed. Let's give them one sin each. One thought, one word, one deed. Well, just three times a day, that's over a thousand sins per year, which means for an average lifespan, that's over 80,000 sins. And yet God's word says to us that if you break just one of his commands only once, You've broken them all. And so in verse 24, Jesus wants us to, to gain a, a clear understanding of the magnitude of our debt to God. It is so immensely huge that it is impossibly unpayable. But on top of that, in verse 25, he wants us to gain a, a clear understanding of the consequence of that debt. 
which is that God demands our very life as a result. The wages of sin is death. God's righteousness and holiness being violated by our sin means that the only payment which can ever be made is death. And not just physical death, but an eternity of spiritual death in hell, which would never be enough to settle the debt that we owe. The consequence of our sin is an eternal life sentence. That's why you don't get out of hell after a hundred years, because there is no way in which we can ever cancel this debt of our sin to God. But the second thing Jesus teaches us through this parable is the abundance of God's grace in verse 26 and 27. As much as Jesus has gone out of his way to use the most elaborate language possible to explain the the magnitude, the extent of our debt before God, he now goes on to show us an even greater abundance of God's grace. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. What? This this servant owed the king a gazillion rand and the king has pity on him and not only forgives the debt, but, but releases him from the consequences of the debt. Just like that? Really? Yes, says Jesus. That's my father. That's the God of the Bible. Do you remember the name that God used, the Lord used, when he proclaimed his name before Moses in Exodus 34? How does God characterize himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God, a God of superabundant grace and mercy, a God who forgives those who fear his name, a God of steadfast, chesed, love and faithfulness. As immense and impossibly unpayable our debt of sin is to God, his mercy is more. His forgiveness cancels our debt, past, present, and future. And so there is a sense in which we should just stop at this point and and worship with the psalmist who says, Behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. With you there is forgiveness that you may be honored and worshipped. Maybe we should just pause and sing. When last have you sung in the middle of a sermon? Let's do that today. What love could remember no wrongs we have done Omniscient, all-knowing He counts not their son Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore Since they are many, is 
certainly wonderful that we should pause and and worship God and marvel at his love and goodness to us in his forgiveness. But the point of this parable is not simply that we should worship God with this knowledge. We should certainly do that. But the point of the parable is that we should practically do something about it once we have this knowledge of this awesome forgiveness of God to us. We have a responsibility to do something with that knowledge. Jesus is not wanting us to to stop here. I think he wants us to pause as we've just done, but he doesn't want us to stop here, but to take from this incredible understanding of God's mercy and grace, the energy and the motive that we need then to go and forgive others. And so in the third place, we, we see the story takes an unexpected twist as this servant who has just been forgiven this unpayable debt, whose life has has been freed and restored to him, he goes out and he does something absolutely shocking. And so in the third place, Jesus wants us to see the scandal of our unforgiveness. In verse 28 to 30. But when the the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We are meant to be disgusted at this man's behavior. We are meant to be shocked and appalled. It is an absolute scandal to think that this man who had just had a gazillion rand written off and he is, and his family have been set free and, and released from all the responsibility and all the consequences of needing to repay. He then goes and takes a fellow servant who owes him a few thousand rand and he chokes him and he ignores his cry for mercy and he has him thrown into prison. This is outrageous. It shows the, the absolute superficiality and, and callousness of this man's heart in the way, in a way that should anger all of us, really to the bottom of our stomachs. 
well, says Jesus. Just as the prophet Nathan said to David when he exposed David's sin of adultery and murder, are you shocked at this man's behavior? Does it enrage you to the core? Well, says Jesus, you are that man. I am that man if we do not forgive our brother or our sister who sins against us. So the cat is out of the bag. Jesus has not held back any punches here. Our unwillingness to forgive our fellow human beings who sin against us reveals us, it reveals you and me to be this unforgiving servant in the parable. Now, if you think that Jesus is done making his point, get ready for one more final blow of truth to those who think that unforgiveness is something that we can tolerate as Christians because in the fourth place, Jesus teaches us about the threat of God's unforgiveness in verse 31 to 35. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, from your heart. Now this passage may come as quite a shock to us today, especially if we have believed the lie of the devil that unforgiveness doesn't really matter. Oh no, says Jesus, it matters and it is very serious because our unforgiveness to fellow human beings, no matter what they have done to us, pales in absolute insignificance with how much we owe God, how much we've sinned against God, how much we've hurt and grieved and violated the holiness and the character of God. And so if we have been forgiven all of our heinous and and multiplied sins against God, how can we not also forgive our brothers and sisters who sin against us? Do you see what the king called the unforgiving servant? In verse 32, he called him wicked, you wicked servant, wicked, because after having received so much mercy from God, by not forgiving his fellow servant, he has made an absolute mockery of God's grace and forgiveness to him. According to what Jesus says here, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Can I say that again? According to Jesus, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Because a person who continues in unforgiveness proves that they have not really understood God's forgiveness of them in the first place. And so they are not Christians, but wicked sinners. Now I must be clear here. If your conscience is troubling you and you are a believer here today, unforgiveness is not the unforgivable sin. It's not a sin from which there is no repentance and no return. But as with all sin, 
if we continue to live in a state of ongoing, blatant, defiant, unrepentant sin against God, then it reveals that in all likelihood we have never really understood the gospel ourselves and we may well not be saved. The point Jesus is making here is that continuing in unforgiveness has severe eternal consequences. God will not ignore our unforgiveness because when we forgive others, we prove to be his disciples. And when we do not forgive others, we prove, at least for that season, to be entrapped by the devil, to be entrapped by his schemes, and we come under the discipline and the displeasure of a holy God. I think this warning of Jesus is is echoed and amplified as we come to Hebrews chapter 10, God's warning of judgment on those who do not forgive. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, again, let's keep in mind here that unforgiveness is a sin. So if we go on sinning deliberately in our unforgiveness after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reason why God is so serious about unforgiveness is because the right to judge and the right to punish and the right to exact payment for sin is God's prerogative and only His. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge His people. And so when you or I do not forgive others who've sinned against us, we are basically usurping God's position as judge. And we are making ourselves judge over other people. See, when you and I refuse to forgive, we not only claim in that instance to be God, but we take on the position of God and we totally ruin His perfect image By being sinful judges, as we hurt and and we hate and we destroy others and ourselves in our spirit of sinful bitterness and revenge. Augustine, again another early church father, once said, If you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. Isn't that wisdom? Unforgiveness makes you into a bad person, a a bitter person, an unhappy person, a, a mistrusting person, an unlovely person. 
a person who actually then invites further sin against yourself as a result. And so the vicious cycle continues. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, who has been sinned against infinitely more than anyone else in all eternity, He comes to forgive you and to forgive me of the guilt of our gazillion debts of sin. He sets us free. He gives us peace and joy. He gives us life and an abundant life. Only for us to take that freedom of his grace and to walk straight back into bondage and slavery to the devil through our sin of unforgiveness of others. What a waste. What a mockery of the gospel. Do you want to know why you and I find it so hard to forgive others? Because we believe the lie of the devil who says that if you hold a grudge, if you make the other person owe you, if you make them pay, you will reap a reward of satisfaction and and restitution which obedience to God will never give you. But it's all a lie. Because in doing that, we actually rob ourselves of all God's peace, of all God's freedom, of all God's blessing, and instead we fill our stomachs with the festering rotten meat of bitterness, which in the end will poison us to death. One theologian has said, the unforgiving spirit is the number one killer of spiritual life. And anyone who has gone even a day or a week in unforgiveness to a fellow human being will know, you'll testify how your spiritual life has started to decay and you are busy dying from the inside out. Where does that leave some of you this morning who have perhaps lived with unforgiveness and bitterness and resent towards others for years. If you continue to live in unforgiveness to a brother or sister today, Jesus is warning you very seriously of the threat of God's unforgiveness, without which you will spend this life in misery and all eternity in misery if you do not repent. Now we must conclude, and I want to try and end off today in a, in a practical way. Where do we go if we are struggling to deal with unforgiveness? How can we forgive as Jesus requires here fully, unlimited times from the heart, genuine forgiveness? Well, as with all the parables, we, we need to go to the one telling the parable. We need to go to Jesus. We need to spend more time at the foot of the cross to realize what our sin did to Jesus, what our sin cost God to forgive us, to see our sins for what they really are. Take your eyes off the sin that the other person has committed to you and focus on what your sin has done to Jesus what your sin has cost God. 
It was my sins that nailed him to the tree. It was me in the crowds calling out among the scoffers. It was me hurling abuse at him and spitting in his face. I was the one in the crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him. It was my sin which held him there. My sins, your sins required the perfect, eternal Son of God to pay the infinite price which we could have never paid in all eternity in hell so that we could be forgiven. And so as you kneel at the cross and as you see every sin that you have ever committed and will still commit laid onto Jesus as he suffers and dies in your place, open the ears of your heart this morning as you hear Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive. The closer you stay to the cross of Jesus Christ, the more you will be reminded of the immensity of the debt which God has forgiven you. And the more you will be reminded of the abundance of God's grace which has been shown to you freely, the more ready and enabled by His Holy Spirit you will be to then forgive others who have sinned against you. And there's just one last thing, and with this I'll close. What about forgetting? You've heard it said, forgive and forget. But what if I can't forget? What if the memory of the hurt and, and the suffering keeps coming back? Does that mean that I have not forgiven? Well, it, it may mean that. Someone once said, there's, there's no point in burying the hatchet if you're going to leave the handle sticking out for immediate use. Charles Spurgeon added, forgive and forget when you bury a mad dog. Don't leave his tail above the ground. So yes, when we forgive someone from the heart as Jesus is, is calling us to do here, it is a deliberate action to show to them the grace which God has shown to you. It is to give up every intention to ever use that person's sin against them again. It's literally to disarm the nuclear weapon or the nuclear warhead of bitterness so as to never be able to find that weapon again in order to use it to bring destruction on the other person. So in that sense, when we forgive, we forget we, we bury the dog and the tail. We, we bury the hatchet and the handle. We don't leave a flag in the ground to mark the spot. So some of you may need to take stock today. Go and bury the tail. Go and set fire to the handle. Pull out the, the, the flag markers. It is time to forget. But in another sense, we may never forget the hurt that was caused. The trust that was broken it may take years to be restored. And so what do we do then with, with the memories of the hurt? Surely we can't just ignore them. Well, by God's supernatural grace, in many cases, the more we marvel at Christ and the gospel, the more he enables us to forget the pain 
but often it takes a long time. And so here, I think John MacArthur is very helpful. He says, forgiveness means that we start all over. It's a new day. It's fresh. It's clean. But that doesn't mean you forget the wrong. You remember it. And every time you remember it, you rejoice in the forgiveness. Did you get that? It doesn't mean you forget the wrong. It means every time you remember it, you rejoice in the forgiveness. It doesn't mean you excuse their sin. No, you acknowledge the sin. You blame them for the sin. Then you forgive the sin. And it doesn't mean we free ourselves permanently from the cycle of pain. There can still be recurring emotions from past pain. But when they come, you rejoice that you have forgiven. God's forgiveness of our sins is what sets us free. Sets us free to forgive others so that we are not held in the prison of bitterness and resentment for all of our lives. Forgiveness is the lifeblood of every true relationship. Every marriage, every friendship, every church, every Bible study group, everything, because forgiveness of Jesus Christ is the very lifeblood of every believer in our relationship to God. And so we are most like God when we forgive others. May God help us to be so amazed by his grace to us today. So amazed at the forgiveness of our sins that we will not leave one stone unturned until we have rooted out every evil weed of unforgiveness in our hearts. So that God may be glorified in our lives and in us as a church. When the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. How do you know that you are free? By forgiving others. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord God, we must just pause at this moment and marvel at the truths of the gospel. Lord, we just pray today that you would enlarge our hearts and our minds to grasp the magnitude of your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your love for us as evil, wicked sinners who do not deserve it. Lord, help us to take our eyes off those that have sinned against us and to turn our eyes towards you. And as you cried out, Father, forgive, may we hear that cry today and forgive. Forgive those whose sins against us in comparison are trivial compared to what we owe you and yet you've written off our debt. You've set us free. May we revel in that freedom. May we revel in that grace as we show forgiveness to others. Lord, I pray that for those who have been in the bondage and perhaps in that prison, that torturous prison of unforgiveness for many, many years, that they would run to the cross today 
and embrace afresh or anew or perhaps for the very first time your forgiveness, full and free forgiveness that sets them free. That by your Holy Spirit, as they grasp all that you have done for them, that they would extend that forgiveness to those that have sinned against them, perhaps even many, many years ago. That they would bury the hatchet. That you would set them free to live this life that demonstrates the glory and the grace of God in the world around us. Help us to do this, we pray, Lord, individually, in our families, in our marriages, towards our children, where there are relationships that have been broken with children for years. Won't you restore? Won't you heal? Won't you forgive? Help us to forgive, we pray in Jesus' name.